My name is Heinu Hansen, and this is The Wine World. Welcome very much to Theo Sirok from Elisabetta Foradori and Foradori Wines. You make wines in Trentino in, uh, in Italy. How is that? Well, it's, uh, it's a lot of bureaucracy. No, it's... Um, yeah, we're in, um, we're in a place called Piana Rutagliana, specifically Mezzo Lombardo. So we're right on the border between uh, the German-speaking part of South Tyrol, which is the northern, most northern region in Italy. And um, uh, we're in, on the Trentino side, so we're in the Italian-speaking part. But I grew up north, so in the German part. Your mother is perhaps one of the superstars of uh, winemaking. Has that affected you as a person growing up? Yeah, of course. Well, I have to say that in this sense, obviously I think that um, my mother always wanted to be measured by the quality of the wines. And um, she's actually quite irritated sometimes by the you know female winemaker perspective in a way or maybe she's just annoyed because over you know over decades you know, in since the 80s journalists come up and say ah we're doing this incredible article about female winemakers you know it's a new thing but then it's repeating itself quite constantly it um well my mother's i would say it's a very she was much more of a father-like figure in a classical perspective maybe so very you know, eager to succeed, um, very driven, um, very pragmatic and uh, an acting person, not uh, not always the most uh, sentimental, caring part. She was always on the road, so me, my brother, my sister, we grew up basically, I'm not saying by ourselves, but, you know, most of the time she was not around. So that was, um, well, it was good, you know, everybody's very independent at home. Sometimes, you know, I don't know, it's it's not the classical thing mother figure i guess i mean for what i hear from descriptions from proper mothers that stay at home and this old school stuff for yourself growing up uh, with wine did you want to leave it at some point did you want to do something else yeah no i mean nobody in my family actually um so you grew up with uh, wine being a constant you know since you you know since i was in elementary school i was at tastings you know constantly and uh, bored playing on my game boy by the way i think the the game boy game pokemon saved my life um until the batteries died i was on that and then i had to figure out uh, you know something to do so you you constantly have wines surrounding you especially because my father was a was a genetist so reinhard sirok he was um he was an expert on uh, preservation of um, indigenous varieties this is also how it came upon that my mother and him, they started out very strongly pointing everything to Teroldego, although it was, you know, the mid-80s, you know, international varieties were the thing you measured your quality terroir on. And so they were driven on Teroldego because my father mainly, I think, influenced her by not seeing any future possibilities with, uh, I don't know, Merlot and Pinot Grigio in my area. In fact, I think he was right on that. Wine was always something that was given for granted. So everybody in my family kind of thought about doing something different. My brother, who's making the wines today, I mean, as a, let's say, executive boss in the cellar and the vineyards, he studied philosophy in Tübingen, in Germany. I studied political science um, in Zurich, and then I specialized in, in journalism, actually in Denmark and in New York. So we all studied other stuff. But we never really, we never, we did never not work with the winery. So when there is a fair and, you know, we could help out, we helped out. In the, during the harvest, we were always present at the winery. So we, it kind of 
you start to not um, be able to separate your existence from the fact that the winery is there. It sometimes gets into the way because you wish you would be able to detach yourself, but then you know that you like it and that it's kind of automatic to you. I see a lot of people, you know, studying and reading through a lot of things to grasp knowledge that for me and my family, for me, it's just what else would there be? You know, it's, it's automatic. So it's an easy way in a way. So it's, uh, it's a bit strange sometimes. And you have to find the strength to find your own way within the wine world, which lends itself quite good because there is space for every interest within the profession, I would say. I would be interested in, in Trentino because it's, very, it's a very different wine area, both in, in the sense of being an Italian wine area and, and in Europe as well, I think. With grapes, you don't see many other places and, and maybe quite an alpine environment. Well, Trentino well, has some characteristics that uh, are common for many areas where agriculture was heavily industrialized after the Second World War. So the cooperative system is very strong. So technical winemaking, so not leaving a lot of freedom or chance for small producers to express as maybe it happened in uh, in parts of Piemonte or in other other sides of Italy, um, for us it was always like the enologist bringing the grapes to the cooperative. You know, in Alto Adige, so in South Tyrol, you have smaller, more diversified cooperatives. And in Trentino, we have uh, you know it was all kind of merged into quite big cooperative monsters. So in this sense, it it influenced the the style of winemaking, the regional style of winemaking, very much. So uh, to this day. Culturally, people from Trentino like very clean. There is not much space for, you know, funky, you know, off the track things. It's, it's quite conservative in this. And variety wise, the same system obviously eliminated or, or disincentivized varieties that were not practical for cooperatives. So, and they were replaced. So, especially Noziola. Noziola is in fact the only white wine variety that is indigenous to my region. And Teroldego, Marzemino. Enanzio, also called uh, Lambrusco Foglia Frastagliata. So technically, we used to be a heavily um, red region. I mean, the, the, the region is a red wine producing region. I mean, until the First World War, for sure. Until the sec- end of the Second World War, I would say. And uh, then becoming part of a different um, clientele, so the Italian market, the region specialized on being a fresh white wine production areas. And at the same time with the Giulio Ferrari, the whole bubble Trento dog thing, but it's actually quite an artifact. The white wine production in this um, percentage is quite an artifact. Um, we are a red producing region and historically we serve the center of Europe. We didn't serve Italy. Italy had plenty of wine, especially red wines. So our market... Our export, let's say, in the second half of the 19th century was mainly to Austria. I mean, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the German-speaking parts in general. So it was a big, it was a big business. It was, it was good, good money. The whole area where I am in Mezzolombardo, Mezzocorona, most of the cellars are built between 1850 and the First World War. So you, you can see in the, in the logistics and in the way that the village is built that the wine boom was mainly given by foreign export. Would would you describe uh, that? I don't know if everybody has tasted uh, Teroldigo. Would you describe the style of the grape? So Teroldigo, I think we're very lucky. Um, also with a with a changing climate, we have um, a variety that has a good acidity and keeps a good acidity. Also compared to other indigenous varieties, even like 
Marzimino or Lagrine for the north. Um, Teroldigo is more acidic and the tannins are much softer or much more, um, let's say they, they change more, but they tend to be on the weaker side. So this gives us a big versatility in the sense that Teroldigo, because of the acidity, can age very long. So it's an elegant, long-aging variety. Maybe sometimes it gets into the way because it's too um, too aggressive or acidic in the beginning, but not really in the last years. But in rainy vintages, it can be harsh in the beginning, unless you like very acidic wines. We have uh, quite low alcohol. I mean, we are always, um, with a regular harvest, you get around 12.5 in warmer years, maybe 13 um, alcohol. And it's... Um, it, it's it's I, I think we're we're lucky because it's ver, it, it has a certain versatility, so you can have long aging wines, but at the same time, you if you make a quick vinification on the reds, you know, if you make a light red wine, you still keep a nice acidity, very floral, and it's it lends itself also for something more rosé like. So I think it's it's um, it's it's a good one, and you can produce a lot. I mean. Uh, well, the cooperative system obviously pushes people to overproduce. In my area, the, you have to imagine that we have only have less than 10 winemakers on 500 hectares that are private winemakers that produce the grapes and produce the wine. Um, all the rest um, goes to the social cooperative and it's, uh, it's a bit of a problem. But those who don't overproduce land um, still on a good production level. So it's, it's something that you, especially on pergola, so you, you can work with it on a good level in terms of quantities. It's good resistant variety as well. So, I mean, I'm, I think it's, uh, it's something that uh, needs to be, you know, it's, it's a bit of a treasure, especially in an era where people want less alcohol on the wine and more freshness. Um, I think it's a good choice. Although it's, I think, I mean, from what, I saw with uh, vineyards that we planted of Teroldego in Fontana Santa on the other side of the valley. It is quite specific in terms of the soil. I mean, it really likes loose soil with a good drainage. If you have a very clay compound soil, it's it's tough. Even though the grapes look nice, the wines tend to be really not not exciting. So it's it's quite specific, I think. You said you you bind up your grapes as pergola, not as uh, Cordon Reat or Gior. We have both. So the old vineyards um, uh, that my grandfather planted, my grandfather, he started with nine hectares and uh, three hectares were planted by his father, my great-grandfather. They were planted between 1939 and 1956. So both of them planted um, pergola. Pergola has a bit of an issue, especially um, when we replanted some vineyards, that it is very... It, produces a lot of grapes in the first 20, 30 years uh, when it goes into production. So if you want to make a fine wine, let's say fine for the standards of the 80s and 90s especially, if you make a fine wine right away, pergola is not. So um, since my grandfather planted um, some clones of Teroldego that were not really um, good for you know quality wine production, they were very mass-producing and high sugar, but low in terms of uh, phenolic uh, potential, my mother, in the early 80s, she cut down six out of nine hectares that were planted and she replanted them with Guyot because uh, she wanted to emerge and get back the money back of cutting everything down. She needed to come out with a wine that was more concentrated and also more, let's say, um, interesting to the palate of those times. So, you know, there was a little bit more oak and uh, Guyot just limits the production no matter what. But you can see that Teroldego also has a grape. It's quite a big grape, very triangular. 
it just doesn't like Guyot. It likes to hang freely from the top of a pergola. So once you put it, uh, let's say, against the wall of uh, Cordon or of Guyot, it doesn't, it doesn't like it. It, it just doesn't like it. When you have harder conditions, you can see how it thrives on a pergola. It's, it's a very horizontally growing plant. If you compare it to other um, varieties that we have, even Manzoni, Manzoni stays nice and stiff vertically in his lines. In the same period, in spring, when the shoots, you know, start, when vegetation starts to explode, you go to a Terol de Goguyo and you have, you're in a jungle because it just lays down horizontally instead of staying like stiff. And so it's, it's a, it's a variety for pergola. In fact, today we would plant pergola. And Manzoni is also a grape you don't see very much out of yes. places. Well, Manzoni, I think it has an interesting history because in fact, uh, Mr. Manzoni, who developed it in Conegliano Veneto, it was developed in Veneto. As a, as a crossing of Riesling that would fit more southern alpine climates. Because in fact, Riesling is a bit more difficult unless you have a very cold valley in, on our side of the Alps. It's not, not ideal, maybe. So Manzoni wanted to develop a good crossing with Riesling because I think he was a Riesling lover um, for our side of the Alps. And um, he crossed it with Pinot Blanc. And in the beginning, it was quite successful. So people planted it. We're talking about the 30s. So it was planted quite widely in Veneto right away, but then after five years they discovered that it wasn't really producing a lot. Manzoni is not a very productive variety. It's a very well-resisting variety, um, you know, thicker skins. We have few problems um, on Manzoni compared to other varieties. So it's a, it's a, it's a contemporary, well-developed variety, I think, a very strong one. I think also the wines, it's the, it's the one wine that is always steadily productive and also in good quality. So it's really, you can see the progression in terms of genetics compared to maybe more um, mummified older varieties. But then um, a lot of the pupils, among which my, my grandfather um, that studied in Conegliano, with him or after Manzoni, so um, they took, also, I think also almost like a souvenir. You know, I studied at the University of Mr. Manzoni, it was quite a big deal. Um, so you bring some Manzoni with you. Apparently he also developed the Manzoni Rosso. I don't know enough about it. I never tried it, but it might be interesting. So they took some Manzoni Bianco to the places where they actually were from originally. And so a lot of, most of the Manzoni today, um, I believe, is uh, in the regions between Trentino and Alto Adige. So it's growing, I think, in popularity because it's semi-aromatic. It has a good acidity. So it's also a variety that is fit for the you know, changing climate where, you know, acidity is getting, you know, more and more of a problem in many parts. So it's a good variety. And I think in Trentino and South Tyrol, they're kind of um, getting that and planting more and more Manzoni. But it has, in the beginning, if you don't filter, if you don't use filtering, it has a problem of reduction. It tends to be a bit reductive in the first year, in the first months after bottling. I mean, we see that problem a little. Um, but for the rest, it's a, it's a very... It's a good grape. I, I heard they planted it in Ischia, which I think is a bit crazy because it's early ripening and it can have quite a lot of alcohol. So they planted around a little bit, but I still think it fits, let's say, mountain climates that face south. And how would you say the climate changes are working for, for Trentino? Well, I cannot speak for Trentino. I, I can, for us, um, we're... I think on this we're very lucky in the sense that, well, lucky re relatively. I see that the obviously the harvest time has been anticipated. Although this year, for example, we had a very late harvest. 2019 was a very long. I mean, we harvested over seven weeks, which is kind of a new record for us. 
and very late. But, you know, harvest tends to be earlier. I think compared to when I was a kid, about two weeks earlier, you have more, less temperature excursions during the harvest. Obviously, the climate change affects the whole year and I tend, you know, people tend to talk and also I tend to notice mainly what happened during the harvest because that's what kind of stays in your mind. But I noticed that there is, uh, I mean, last year, in 2018, I was uh, in my underwear in mid-October on the balcony in the evening. This is something that uh, I, it's not kind of normal for that time. Even this year was very hot. I mean, it's still very warm in, in my area. So that certainly pushed up. So like longer fall. And then you have um, more like, um, you know, immediate harsh weather traumas. For example, this year in spring we had, uh, which we are very sheltered by the mountains. So we don't have a lot of wind. And we had this, uh, we had one night, actually a couple of days where the wind was really very strong. And it went so far that it broke a lot of the shoots that had just come out of the, on the pergolas. So we lost quite a lot of production. It also kind of doesn't even out very well the plant's damage because the wind kind of hits some part of the plant and some vineyards are okay depending which direction they were planted. So it's a bit, it's these problems that you cannot really do much about. And same with hail. In 17, for the first time in a long time, we had, you know, heavy hail in the beginning of August in the Piana Rotaliana, which usually is well sheltered from hail somehow so you have these uh, these like traumatic um, harsh weather conditions that are immediate and um, and also very short so it's like more short traumas and the trend goes towards heating everything up and limiting the development of low ph which then becomes uh, you know in terms of fermentation and uh, bacterial development that changes quite a lot so especially to make low intervention wines with spontaneous fermentations and uh, you know limiting bacterial problems on the wines without intervening it becomes more and more difficult if you have higher pH. Frodoria has been quite known for making uh, low intervention wines as well. Well yes I mean this is for me it's always a bit strange because in fact uh, we are always so the real uh, um, the real natural talibans see us as conservative you know and the conservatives see us as some as freaks so it's a bit strange i think first of all um the whole natural wine movement if you want to call it like this obviously it's not enough to have uh, no or low intervention wine you know if it's not good obviously something that sometimes the client um, needs to be a little bit harder on but you know then you're unexperienced they serve it they describe you know it's a lot about good storytelling and in this whole good storytelling, you know, we're a family business, you know, we're more people. It's uh, it's not as comfortable as having like three hectares and I don't give a shit about if I don't sell this. I just bottle it and let's go. Um, so we're in a different position, you know, we, we work with 26 hectares, you know, there's 15 people working with us. I need to be a bit more careful. In this sense, being the second generation or third generation is a little bit more, not complicated, but you have to be a little bit more careful. You know, I cannot... Um, I cannot be as reckless as sometimes I would like to be. And this also expresses in the wines. You know, we um, we do, we lowered, obviously, the sulfur content heavily. Um, so let's say all the Amphora wines are, are around 23, 25 um, total sulfur. So for me, that's not a problem. We do all the wines as well without any added sulfur, but we only sell them at the winery. So for me, that's a way to, you know, I need to be able to guarantee also certain correctness of what we do. And uh, I'm not going to say coherence, but something similar to, you know, a wine that 
can be compared to the wines of the vintage before and not completely being you know unbalanced and in the in the hands of whatever transportation system you use to bring the wine. So if I can give you the wine at the winery, I don't need to add any sulfur. It will be different though, you know, um, especially on the whites. Um, sometimes for me better, sometimes less, you know, especially for example on the Pinot Grigio now, the 2018, I prefer the one that was sulfured in the bottling. It's much finer. The, the one without is not, it's very, it goes overboard. It's very muscular. I don't, I don't always like one better than the other. I think it's a good discussion. But I think there is more pressing issues than uh, if you have uh, 15 or 30 milligrams of sulfur. Unless you shoot to completely incomprehensive values, I don't think that should be the main concern at the moment. Indigenous yeast is already something that might be more interesting. Uh, I think that is more fundamental, I think, for a winemaker that wants to do wine that is interesting. And, and working in the vineyards as well, I know that several producers especially on uh, organic and biodynamical path is working a lot with um, trying to use as little copper as possible in the, in the vineyards well yeah that is an issue you have to imagine that um, my my grandfather who was not a particularly you know harsh interventionist in the vineyards so he didn't use any um, any pesticides but, for example, in the copper sulfur use, and this is also culturally, I mean, a treatment on a hectare for him was never less than, you know, 15, 20 kilos of product. It wouldn't make any sense. Today we work with uh, 1.5 to... So, I mean, the, the, the difference is already... Um, where here you, there is the risk to drift off into the whole uh, PV-resistant variety discussion, which is a bit complicated, I think. Um, but obviously, we are tied to the weather. There's not much to do. So um, in a vintage like 2018, um, we had the, the spring was very warm, very humid. So we ended up, um, you know, going, you know, having a, to do about 10 to 12 treatments. This year in 19, it was barely anything. Spring was cold. Um, it was not humid. Or even if it was humid, it wasn't warm enough to actually develop a real peronospora problem. And so it was uh, a third of the intervention of before. So there is not much to do around this. I mean, th we constantly do experiments, you know, using milk. I mean, there is several methods. They're a bit, they're mitigating a little bit, but we're in a very humid climate. We're in a very, we're not in the ideal area of wine production where you could work with no inter that would not be uh, would not be correct. It's just too. It's a problematic area, especially for the. In working with your wine from a gastronomical uh, prospect, uh, what style of food would you pair your wines with? Well, it depends. Well, obviously. Well, first of all, this is not really my job in the sense that I'm not. Uh, I'm the pairing. You know, wine pairing to food is something very contemporary. I mean, contemporary in the sense, you know, after you know, after war thing. So on this scale, I mean. Every wine has its own thing, I, and it's also a lot about taste. So for me, noziola goes well with uh, vegetable dishes and um, rabbit. Uh, when it comes to the manzoni bianco, I really like it on spicy, on Asian food. Even the noziola would be actually quite good on Asian food, I think. And I'm talking Asian food, I mean, obviously, very spicy, Indian, um, some some uh, Thai food as well. So it really depends. They're all they go... You know, the acidity, you know, as many wines, it's ideal with a nice pork belly with potatoes. But in the end, the whole pairing issue started 
too late to actually feed the cuisine. You know, we, we, we eat more or less the same stuff that we used to eat in my area. You know, we have a lot of game, and that obviously goes well with Teroldego. Um, you know, charcuterie, um, uh, very, you know, aged cheese. I would put that in with noziola very well because you have a very spicy, salty cheese and a very delicate, silky wine that kind of fits very well. But I'm honestly not really the best person to ask. <laughs> market-wise, for Fodore, what is your biggest market? Well, Italy is the biggest market. I think it's very important to be strong in the place you're from, even though it's, you know, it demands as much work as all the other nations put together. The United States has replaced Germany 10 years ago already as the strongest export market. So we work uh, very well in the States to the, to the point where we have to kind of limit while you know heavily limit what we what we give there to not be too exposed to one only you know one market i think we sell about 23% of our production to the states if we go over 23% and mr trump wants you know you just you're, you're just uh, you're just in the hands and you you don't have an alternative eventually sometimes i think it would be very comfortable to have like three strong markets you know you don't need to travel a lot you do your you know you do your things there and that's fine but in the end It's uh, diversifying helps people to know the wine in different parts, and uh, it you know it can also help the rest of the area to develop a little bit. Hasn't happened yet that much, but certainly. Um, so yes, so after the states, obviously, well, Canada is very strong now. I think uh, French Canadian wine consumption is on a very high level at the moment. We have um, Scandinavia, especially Norway, and uh, I would also say Sweden. Uh, Denmark is a little bit more complicated because it's a lot of very small direct imports done by restaurants. So it's very fragmented at the moment. Um, and there is this lookout for so many new things, which is, I think it's positive for the, for the development of taste, but it's sometimes also a bit like there is only so many, you know, wine regions and wine producers so it's sometimes it's a little bit stretched you know just to have the newest smallest user working in plastic um, for elisabetta i've heard that she also has this uh, tuscany connection yes especially maybe with uh, ampelaya and uh, production in maremma yes so this um yeah, this is quite a complicated issue in fact so it started in the early 2000s as a project with two friends And they all put in the same amount of uh, investment, and they—I think it's—I mean, it's—it's it's an incredible place. You should go there. It's—I've um, been there. Ah, it's—it's it's beautiful. You're close to the sea. You're close to the mountains. It's—it's uh, it's also a very good area in terms of cost of producing, but it doesn't have an image, Marema. So it has to be built up a little bit. So the idea was to, um, with these friends, to produce. Um, to start the winery there. I mean, it was quite for fun. You know, one guy was a politician, and one guy. Is a big has a big industry in the north of Italy, and um, my mother led. Let's say it's like the art direction of it. By now, the shares of my mother are basically zero. She's still collaborating as an as an ex, let's say an external consultant or something like that. So, Marco Marco Tait was making the wines there. He's the son of um, the head of the vineyards um, historically with in in Foradori. So. Um, Carlo worked with my grandfather and his son Marco was like the brother that my mother never had. So she, I mean, he's her protege and he's been doing an amazing job together with my mother, but, you know, decisively also doing things differently from how she wants it. And I think by now she really is happy that um, he's doing things uh, much more his way than her way. And... Uh, 
and it's a, it's a beautiful group of people working there. So it's um, it's its own thing, and my mother kickstarted it um, in terms of you know the little bottle, the the, the 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 which vineyards were planted. But in the last five years, Marco definitely took over as also the face and the the man behind everything more than before. How do you think uh, Foradori will continue to develop? How do you see Foradori in, in, in 10 years' time? Well, a lot of things are happening, in fact. But obviously, my mother is not involved in the winemaking process since uh, 2013. So by now, she's not even there during the harvest, which is not bad. You know, obviously, there is a, there is a big clash. You know, my mother, you have to imagine her a little bit like, a, you know, she was the pioneer. She started things and she is used to things being done how she wants them to be. And then all of a sudden, she has to decide with other four people, you know. And that's quite traumatic. So the so from a, from a Stalinist system, we're going into more of a, I don't know, um, a small oligarchy or something. But we are including our collaborators much more in every part, you know, in every part that we do in the decision-making. So we're trying to decentralize the winery in terms of it's a winery, you know. It's like a... It's a chateau. It's not Isabetta Foraduri. Um, and this is quite, uh, quite important, I think, on the long run. Um, and for the rest, we've been diversifying the production heavily. So the wine production amount will stay the same. It will not increase. And on the other hand, my sister came back from Canada, um, working um, with uh, Mr. Fortier on uh, La Ferme du Quatre Temps. And she... She started, uh, let's say, a farm-to-table project. I mean, we, we, we produce vegetables. We, have, we make a farmer's market in the winery. And um, we sell to single restaurants. And that will be expanded. So we will put a lot of energy into bringing more diversity in what we can offer to people, especially also to offer it locally to our... You know, we are a little bit misunderstood because my, my mother, when she... When the whole thing exploded, you know, when the beautiful young lady with this weird sounding variety was um, kind of becoming a big star, it didn't, you know, it didn't go well with the locals. There was a bit of jealousy. There was also a bit of arrogance maybe in certain moments from my mother's side, but she closed herself into the winery. She said, okay, if I lead as an example and I export the Roldego, at some point they will understand that you can do better and more. It didn't really work out that much. So... Me and my my brother and my sister have a different approach. So my mother at the moment is involved in the other, um, let's say, thing that we start actually in January. We also will start producing cheese. So we've had our seven cows, well, you know, growing and, you know, our cows for a decade now and we never really produced cheese. So now we're trying to set up and bring the, our, we have a cow variety called Grigialpina and bring it up to, um, a number that is feasible for a, a good cheese, um, for a good cheese production. And, uh, that's gonna, so these two things and bigger problem will be that Fontana Santa, so all the white wines, except for the Pinot Grigio, they're on a, uh, the, it's nine hectares above Trento and the, we are on a 25 plus 25 year lease. So in the next 10 years, that's gonna expire and, uh, you know, we will sit at the table with the many owners of that place and we will see how, what they think. We are paying an extremely high rent and I don't know if we can renew it. So in that case, we have to figure out a way to produce white wines in a different area. So this is also a concern. So there might be an evolution on the white wines, but they're all the red wines. Um, that's going to be stable. It's going to be so interesting 
to follow Foradori also into the future. Thank you very much for coming, Theo Sirok. Thank you very much.